Dirty Minds Anyone who has broached the question of sex in the undergraduate classroom cannot have escaped the accusation, you are reading too much sex into this text. This is perhaps especially true of Renaissance courses, in which expectations of great literature written in the mists of time would seem to obviate any possibility of eroticism. Teachers generally take recourse in textual glosses to explain the body, scatological, and downright filthy references that punctuate even the most canonical plays and poems. Sometimes we seek assistance from the many glossaries that codify sexual allusions or assign criticism that interprets dynamics of erotic love, homosexuality, or sexual violence. When we teach drama, we can screen recent films, particularly those capitalizing on the market value of Shakespeare, which increasingly adorn words with graphic depictions of flesh. Despite this pedagogical state of the art, however, understandings of early modern sex remain circumscribed by a number of stubborn assumptions that it is almost always heterosexual, that it ultimately tends toward the consummation of penis and vagina, that its apotheosis is to be found in the couple form, that unless it is a matter of violent assault, it is inevitably a prelude to or a sign of marriage. Often accompanying these calcified ideas are others, that heterosexuality, unlike homosexuality, is not subject to change, that sex is the main, uh, a source of pleasure, ending in orgasm, that certain sexual outlets, like prostitution, exist mainly to preserve heterosexual marriage, that sex within marriage is banal and boring, subsumed ideologically under the imperative of reproduction. In other words, a presumptive knowledge overwrites what sex is, what it does, what it means, and why we should care about it. Sex Before Sex aims to dismantle that knowingness in the name of a future critical practice that does not presume to know in advance what sex is and has been. Varnado. It does so, paradoxically, by applying analytical pressure on what would seem to be the most self-evident of categories— Sex Acts Consider Romeo and Juliet, a mainstream Shakespeare play, long approached as a veritable primer in sex, romantic love, and the Renaissance topos of sex as death. In reading a moment of almost universally agreed-upon straight sex, the morning-after-bedroom scene between the secretly married Romeo, a boy, and Juliet, a girl played by a boy actor, Varnado in Chapter 1 emphasizes the invisibility of offstage sex. It is only by virtue of readerly acts of identification that this action can be captioned as the legally sufficient penis and vagina variety of sex. Like the essays of her co-contributors, her inquiry brings to the fore multiple erotic possibilities, not just cunnilingus and anal sex, but temporal interruption and impotence. Beyond this imagined expansion of Romeo and Juliet's erotic repertoire of particular interest is that this most romantic of tragedies does not, in fact, figure sex much at all, and depends to an extraordinary degree on the imaginations of its readers and audiences. Indeed, insofar as Renaissance literature's representation of sex tends to rely on linguistic simulacra and post-facto revelations, sex, for the most part, is a matter of bed tricks.